Well, hey, good morning. My name is Adam. It's great to be with you. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you again to Meadowland Church. Hey, Taylor, could you come here? I need your help real quick. Could you? I just need your help for something real fast. If you could just stand right there. Uh, I, I, I'm not going to tell you that today's actually Taylor's 18th birthday. And so, uh, yeah. I also didn't tell him I was going to do this, so he's not really excited about what I'm doing here. But on the count of three, would you all just yell happy birthday to Taylor? I mean, it's his 18th birthday, and he's here serving the Lord. That's the kind of church we want to be. We want to be people who are committed to following Jesus, even when it's inconvenient to us. We want to celebrate you and that the Lord made you. We want to celebrate your servant heart this morning. So as loud as you can, we want want the other church across the street to hear us. They want them to know what's going on over there. Okay, ready? Count of three, happy birthday, Taylor. One, two, three. Happy birthday! Absolutely. We love you, man. Happy birthday. And I hope you'll forgive me by the end of the service. So, also, hey, if you're, if you're wondering why should you serve at Meadowland Church, because we'll embarrass you from time to time, okay? There's some added perks to that. Well, hey, let me, uh, let me pray for us. We are going to open up our Bibles and dive right in, but I did want to celebrate that this morning. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before you this morning, and we thank you for who you are. Thank you for Jesus, your son, that you sent so that we might be forgiven and set free and have life and life to the full. God, I pray that this morning as we gather together in this place, God, that you would be with us. God, that you would work in the ways that only you can, that your Holy Spirit would reveal you to us. God, that maybe one of the things that would happen this morning is that we'd get a bigger, clearer picture of who you are, that our trust in you, that our confidence in you would grow, and that uh, we would be willing to trust you with the details of our lives, with the things that are dearest to us. And so, God, I pray that as we investigate your word this morning, God, I pray that it would become real to us. I pray that we would not just be hearers, but we would be doers of your word, and that something supernatural would take place in the next few minutes as we open up your word together and discover what you have to say to us this morning. So I pray that I would be silent, Jesus, and that you would speak through your word this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. We are going to be in Matthew chapter 26, and so I want to give you an opportunity to open up your Bibles. Uh, Matthew chapter 26, if you want to go digital and turn on your Bible, you can do that. If you brought your Bible, open that one. If, you, if you, you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be a, a Bible somewhere around you. Uh, uh, they're not really hymnal Bibles, or, or they're not really pew Bibles, because we don't have pews, so we'll call them row Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, just take the nearest one to you, the, one of those black ones, write your name in it, it's yours. Take it home with you, that's our free gift. We would love for you to have the Word of God before you. So Matthew chapter 26, if you're using one of the Bibles we provided for you, I believe it's on page 831. So, for the last few weeks, we've been talking about uh, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Because if you do follow Jesus, maybe you're investigating what it looks like to be in a relationship with Jesus. The reality is that sometimes it's difficult. Uh, Sometimes it's hard. Uh, Sometimes we get to places in our walk with Jesus that we didn't expect to get to. Sometimes there's transition. Sometimes there's growing that takes place within us. Sometimes there's tension and there's conflict. In fact, I would suggest to you that as we talk about following Jesus... Uh, the reality is in your life and my life, there's kind of a significant switch that has to take place. And what I would suggest to you is that every single one of us begins our relationship with Jesus and we come to him as a consumer. And what I mean by being a consumer is that we come to Jesus expecting to get things from him. The, at the earliest phases of our relationship with him, the relationship kind of basis looks like this. Jesus, what can you do for me? What do you have to offer me? What can I get from you? 
In fact, I think about the earliest part maybe of my walk with Jesus. My mom forced us to go to church. In fact, I would tell you that the first time we went to church, it was a horrible experience. And as a young man, uh, we went to this church. It was a really bad deal. And I thought, I'll never go to church again. In fact, uh, even this morning as I was driving into to church, I kind of laughed sometimes. ago. It still just kind of is humorous to me that I'm a part of a church, that I'm a pastor of a church, that I preach on almost a weekly basis because there was a time in my life when I thought, how can I get as far from that as possible? I don't think I ever want to be a part of a church. I think church is weird. I think Christians are weird. I think they believe weird things. But something significant happened in my life where my mom continued to drag me to church. Now, I'm significantly bigger than my mother, But if you have a mom and if she's ever threatened you before, my mom says things to me like, I brought you into this world so I can take you out of it. And I believe her when she says that. So when she would tell me it's time to go to church, I thought it's either church or death. And so we would go to church and uh, we began to go to a church that actually wasn't so bad of an experience. It was actually really, really significant in my life. And the reality was I was skeptical. I had all kinds of doubts. I don't think I believed what anybody else believed. I wasn't really sure that I believed what the Bible said, and I didn't really want to act like a Christian because I thought Christians were kind of weird. And I had to go to Sunday school class, and it was like bad. It was like bad Sunday school class. It was one of those things where sometimes I skipped Sunday school class and I got in big trouble for it. But here's what happened. I began to realize and kind of came to the realization that if sin was real, if there was a thing called sin, And if there was a place called hell, that I probably deserved that. And I remember not really believing the whole thing, and I really hadn't fully bought into it, but I remember laying in bed as a high school student thinking, if hell is real, then that's probably where I'm going to go. I've done some things, and this thing they called sin, I think I'm pretty guilty of some of that stuff. And if the reality is that if you have to be perfect to get into heaven, then I just know that I'm not a good candidate for that. And so I began to go to church kind of wondering, what could Jesus offer me? Like, what, 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 what can Jesus do about my sin situation? What, what, what kind of fire insurance is Jesus offering against the fire of hell? And I, I began my relationship with Jesus as a consumer. And I think most of the time when we present the gospel, I think we, we present it as kind of that deal, right? That for the wages of sin is death. And you go, well, that, that sounds horrible. And you go, well, the reality is every single one of us has sinned. Paul says in Romans, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that our sin gives birth to death in our lives and that actually because of our sin, we're separated from God and we're subject to the wrath of God. And that's why the gospel is good news is because God loved us so much, right? That God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son so that we shall not perish but have eternal life that because of Jesus' life and his death and because of his resurrection, that our sins can be forgiven, that we can be washed white as snow, that we're no longer subjects to God's wrath, but rather we're sons and we're daughters. Do we have every hope and every promise of the Bible that we're guaranteed eternity, that when Jesus says, I'm going to be with my Father and make a room for you, we think that's us. And see, I think we begin our relationship as a consumer. Jesus, what can you do for me? Jesus, how can you deal with my sin issue? Jesus, how will you keep me from hell? Because, right, most times you don't hear a gospel presentation and go, I don't know, hell sounds kind of tropical. Like, maybe I'd like to spend eternity there, like kind of frying up like a piece of bacon, torment, separation. Like, I don't know, can I get a big condo there? I mean, a window unit? I mean, what's going on there? I mean, most of the time when you talk about eternity, you go, I don't know if I believe everything. And I have some questions, and I'm kind of skeptical, but I don't know, I think I'll take the heaven. Like streets paved with gold, no sorrow, no sin, no suffering, but eternity spent with God? 
imperfection? No more cancer? No more sickness? No more loss? Like, I don't know. That sounds pretty good. And what happens is, is we begin a relationship with Jesus as a consumer. What am I going to get? What are you going to offer me? How can I get the good news into my life? Jesus, how will you affect my eternity? Jesus, how will you affect my marriage? How will you affect my family? How will you affect my relationships? See, there's this, this big word that we use in the church. It's called discipleship. And sometimes when we, we talk about the word discipleship, people get a little uneasy. But I think discipleship just can be defined this way. Discipleship is moving from being a consumer to being a fully devoted follower of Jesus. That we all come into this wondering, hey, what can I get from you, Jesus? How, how would you change my sin? How, how would you reunite me with the Father? How do I get that life everlasting? The process of discipleship is saying, hey, I came into this thing as a consumer, but that's not where I want to stay. That I actually become a fully devoted follower saying, Jesus, I believe in you. I have so much trust, I have so much confidence that I would actually let go of some stuff in my life to worship you and to follow you, that I would do what you say, I would go where you go, that I would actually choose your will over my will. In fact, I think as we look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we would actually see that the Gospels are the narrative of Jesus' life, even his death and resurrection, from the perspective of his first followers. And if we really pay attention, we begin to see that within the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that we actually see that it's part of the story of them moving from consumers. People who are doubtful, people who are skeptical, people who Jesus says all the time, you of little faith. It's them moving from, hey, we're not really sure. Hey, we're not totally bought in. Hey, we don't normally get it. So after about three years with Jesus, they go from consumers to being fully devoted followers. That after they would see and spend time with him in his life, that they would see him perform miracles and listen to his teaching, that they would go with him wherever he went. When they then witnessed his horrific death and his resurrection, something happens within them. That they become so convinced, they become so filled with faith that they actually dedicate their lives not to teach what Jesus taught, but to tell people what they saw. In fact, in the opening book of Acts, Peter preaches this whole message, right? And this is what he says, I'm just going to tell you what I saw. He was from God. He was the unique son of God. You guys crucified him. You put him on a cross. You killed him. He was dead and buried, and he rose again. I saw it. That's the gospel, the good news. Jesus rose from the grave to forgive us for our sins. In fact, these guys believed in this so much. They actually moved from being consumers saying, Jesus, what can I get from you, to actually going to their deaths because they were relentless in preaching the gospel and unashamed to tell people what they heard and what they saw. Now, most of the disciples made this huge transition. They went from being a consumer to a fully devoted follower. But there's one guy who never made it. There's one guy who actually never made that jump, and he's famous for it. His name's Judas Iscariot. And I would suggest to you that Judas never made the switch from being a consumer to a follower. I would tell you that Judas always remained a consumer. That Judas's relationship with Jesus looked something like him just wondering, Jesus, what do you have to offer me? Jesus, what will I get from you? 
How will you benefit me? How will you fast track my life? How will you enable me to reach my goals? How will you empower me to get my will done? And I think Judas actually becomes famous because of his lack of faith. Because he sees Jesus only as a means to an end. As a way to get what he wants. In fact, we have to put this in perspective because I think Judas believed what the other disciples believed. Now, we miss some of the context in this sometimes. Because the Jewish people in Jesus' time were awaiting for the Messiah. And one of the things they believed about the Messiah is that he would reunite the people with God. They believed that he would forgive sins. He believed that they would heal the sick. They believed all that. But one of the things they also believed is that the coming Messiah would also be a king. That he would be a great king. That he would come from the line of King David. And the reason this was so important is because Jerusalem, the city of God, inhabited by God's people for many, many, many years, has been occupied and governed by other nations. And so one of the things they believe is this coming Messiah, this coming Messianic Jewish king, is that he would rule with an iron scepter. That he would have so much power, that he'd have so much authority, that he'd have so much control, that actually that whole region of the world would submit to his authority. That he would conquer his enemies, that he would kick out Rome, that anybody that would try to invade would be defeated by him and his army, and that he would reestablish Jerusalem as this great city of God. And see, all the disciples believe that. That Jesus fit the criteria. He was actually the perfect candidate. He had the family lineage. He was from the line of David. He was a powerful communicator. People followed him. He was able to do things that no one else was able to do. It seemed as though he had power that nobody else had. And I think Judas, like the rest of the disciples, believed that Jesus was the coming king, that he was the Messiah. But here's the problem. I think Judas was trying to force Jesus to become the kind of Messiah and the kind of king and the kind of God that Judas wanted instead of allowing Jesus to be exactly who he was. In fact, I think for Judas, when he saw Jesus, he saw him as a means to an end. In fact, I think Judas thought, hey, if I'm one of the inside people in the circle, if I'm one of the 12, then when Jesus becomes king, when Jesus rules and when Jesus reigns, if if I'm one of the 12, that means I have to be right within the top 12 most powerful people in Jerusalem. Like, at least I'd have more power than guy number 13, and I would be in the inner circle. Maybe I'd be part of the executive board. Maybe I'd get an official position in the cabinet. So Judas was all about advancing his will. He was all about allowing Jesus to help him accomplish his goals and get what he wanted. And he directly believed that there were all kinds of benefits to following Jesus. And listen, there are all kinds of benefits to following Jesus. I think if you follow Jesus, you'll become a better man, you'll become a better woman. You'll become a better husband, you'll become a better wife. You'll become a better father, you'll become a better mother. That there's all kinds of things that Jesus works up in us, right? That we can actually forgive people the way that we've been forgiven. That even though we've maybe had hard lives, we become kind and loving and gentle towards one another. 
that we could actually have so much faith and so much trust in Jesus that our faith would actually overcome our fear. That as believers, as followers in Christ, that even on our worst day, we could have the assurance that this is as close to hell as we'll ever get. That the trouble we're facing today, this is the worst it can get. Because even if I were to die tomorrow, I'd go straight to be with Jesus where everything just gets better. And there's all kinds of benefits to following Jesus. But what happens is, in your life, in my life, is there will come a time, and maybe that time is now, but there will come a time in your life where you'll become so highly aware that what you want is in direct conflict with what Jesus wants. And see, in that moment, in that situation, within that decision, when we begin to discover, I have my will and what I wish for and what I desire. And when we begin to realize that nobody really has to tell you, you just kind of begins to sense it, you just kind of begin to know there's this hyper-awareness where you go, there's something tense or something, I'm not exactly sure, but it seems as though what I want and what Jesus wants are in conflict with one another. And see, in that moment, something significant happens. The way you make that decision, the way you process through that, it actually begins to reveal to you who you belong to. And it actually begins to reveal to you, are you a consumer or are you a follower? And see, I think there was all kinds of tension between Judas and Jesus. I think the tension all belonged to Judas I think Judas was waiting for Jesus to become the king that he always thought he thought Jesus should be. I think that as Jesus did stuff, Judas thought, you're not the king I was hoping for. And maybe when when Jesus would actually do miracles for the Roman people, I think that bothered Judas. Don't you get it, Jesus? They're the enemy. What do you mean you're going to heal this Roman guy's daughter? You should be telling him that you're the king and he better get out of here. What do you mean that the gospel would be for the Gentiles? You're the Jewish Messiah. You're the Jewish king. And how come you're always so hard on the Jewish religious leaders? Like, Jesus, don't you know we're going to need them? Like, don't you know that they're part of our team? And it seems like you're more interested in those people than you are the Jewish people. And like, well, how come you and the religious leaders don't get along? In fact, Matthew records for us that there's this incident in Bethany where the tension really comes to the table. Or maybe we see this whole thing a little bit more clearly for the first time in Scripture. There was some tension between Judas and the way he thought Jesus was doing things. It's Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 6. Here's what the Scriptures say. It says, Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. Now here, pause real quick. Nobody really knows who Simon the leper is. It seems as though he's a close friend of Jesus, It seems as though the disciples are comfortable and familiar with Simon the leper. Uh, Some people would tell you that it's um, Lazarus. And I'm like, I I don't know why you would think it was Lazarus, because that'd be a really weird nickname. (laughs) What's up, leper? Like, if you're not a leper. And so we're not really sure, but we know that they're comfortable. We think that they've spent time with this guy before. And so Jesus and the disciples are at the house of Simon the leper. A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment. And she, point, she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw this, they were indignant, saying, Why waste this? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the 
poor. So here's the context, right? Jesus and his disciples are at a friend's house. And there's another guest, a woman there, and she brings an alabaster a flask filled with really expensive ointment. But maybe the best way to think about this is really, 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 really expensive perfume. Like the stuff that's way too expensive for you to buy. Someone would have to give it to you. And what happens is, is this woman comes to Jesus, and now they would call this in Jesus' time as an, an anointing. She was anointing him with the oil. She was pouring it over him. This was a blessing. This was a sign of love and affection of worship. What Matthew says is she began to do that. Some of the disciples became angry. And they're like, well, what's going on? Why, why are you allowing this to happen? That's really expensive oil. Like, we, we, we could sell that. Why would you let her waste this money? Why would you let her waste the oil? I mean, like, there's, we could sell it and give it to the poor. Think about how many meals we could, we could provide. Think about how many people we could put in the, the shelter for a night. Man, that's what a waste. Now, at first glance, you might go, I don't know, that seems like an appropriate question, but put it in this context. This would be similar to you and me going to someone's home for a meal. And maybe you sit down at this beautifully set dining room table, and you begin to look at the plates that have been set before you, and you realize that this is really fine china. Like, this is the stuff that when you went to the store, your mom didn't even let you go in that section because she didn't want to buy it in case you knocked into it. And just imagine that in that setting, you maybe pick up a fork or a knife, and you go, man, this doesn't feel like my mom's silverware. I mean, this, this feels different. And the person who's hosting you goes, oh, that's actually real silver. That's been our, in our family for generations. And this is really expensive stuff. And it would be as, as though you and I were sitting at that table, and, and they're like, and by the way, we, we are serving the most choice filet mignon. And that'll be out in a minute. It'd be as though you and I looked at that person and said, are you kidding me? What are you trying to pull here? Serving me a nice dinner on a nice plate. Do you know what we could do with that money? I mean, you know, if we went down to the pawn shop right now with the silver, you know what we could get for this? And you know, if we got rid of that crystal club, if we got rid of that china, do you know how many people we could feed? Do you know how much money we could save if we just busted out the red solo cup and the paper plates? What are you trying to pull here? Why are you trying to give me a fancy meal? We should just sell all your stuff and give it away. That's exactly what's happening here. In fact, it's interesting because John, who's present for this, gives us a different perspective. In fact, he gets really, really perspective. He takes Matthew's, uh, his narrative of it, and John goes, no, no, let me, let me tell you what really happened. John chapter 12, verse 4 and 5. He said, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples... He who was about to portray Jesus said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? John goes, no, no, let me tell you a secret. We weren't mad. Judas was mad. By the way, the bad guy. Judas, the soon-to-portray Jesus guy, right? And if you've grown up around church, if you've been in Sunday school, if you know anything about the gospel, when you hear the name Judas, you kind of hear, dun, 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 right? The bad guy. Like, the, there's, you've never met a hero named Judas, right? People don't name their children Judas. Like, you've never got the family Christmas card from Molly, James, and Judas, right? You don't own a dog named Judas. Maybe a cat. I don't know. Maybe a cat, okay? But, like, nobody uses the name Judas for anything because he's the bad guy. You know, like, what do you think, honey? Judas? Nah, bad name, right? So this is what he says. He goes, this Judas that got mad. And you go, well, why is Judas so mad? He said, not because he cared about 
the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. He goes, oh yeah, Judas is the treasurer. And you can ask all the questions in the world, like, how come Judas was the treasurer? And I don't know. Probably because they thought Judas was better than Matthew, the tax collector, right? Man, if you make him treasurer, he's going to tax everything, right? He's probably better than Thomas, because Thomas questioned everything. So Judas was the treasurer. And what John says, we all know what Judas was doing with the money bag. He, he put two in and took three out. And, and Judas was looking at this whole thing going, Jesus, whoa, 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 whoa. Do you know what we could sell that for? Do you know what I could do with that? Listen, if we sold that for 300, I could put 200 in the money bag and give myself 100. Like, Jesus, don't you get it? You're supposed to be the king. We're supposed to overthrow the local government. We're supposed to reestablish Jerusalem. That's going to take money. 300 denarii could do some stuff. But what, what are you doing? Why are you allowing her to waste this money? Don't you know we're trying to fund a revolution? And Jesus somehow always seems to know what's in the hearts and the minds of the people around him. And Matthew reveals to us as this whole thing's going down, as everyone's really upset and worried about the money, Matthew chapter 26, verse 10, it says, But Jesus, aware of this, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. It's as though Jesus kind of leans into the situation and goes, what are you giving her a hard time for? Why would you bother her with this? He said, guys, you've missed it. This is an offering. This is a gift. This is a beautiful thing. This is an act of worship. How could you be mad about this? Why are you not moved by this? How come none of you had this idea? And Jesus goes on to say, for you will always have the poor with you. Now, I want you to really see this, and this is why having the Bible in front of you is important, because every politician in the world loves to quote Jesus on this one. They just leave off the second half. Jesus says, for you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Jesus goes, time out. See, I want you to know why this was so significant. I know Judas is saying he would, have sold the money, he would have sold it to get money to feed the poor, but we know that's not true. And Jesus says, but even if it was true, that the poor will still be here in a few days. But I won't. He says, in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. He says, don't you get it, guys? My father has moved in her in such a way that this offering, this gift that she's given me is also a foreshadowing of what I've been telling you. Guys, when we get to Jerusalem, they will condemn me, they will spit on me, they will mock me, and they will kill me. Like, that's going to happen. And somehow my heavenly father has worked in her in such a way that she came to me when she gave this offering, when she gave this anointing, when she gave this blessing. This is actually preparing me for what's to come. Like, watch what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. He goes, guys, you've missed this. Like, this is so special. This is so significant. This is such a tender moment. 
that when the gospel goes to the ends of the earth, when people talk about me, when people talk about my life, my death, and my resurrection, when people tell the good news, you know what they'll talk about? They'll talk about her. They'll talk about the woman who came to the table and poured the ointment all over me that you guys argued over. And isn't it interesting that here we are today participating in that prediction? That here we are 2,000 years later studying the very scripture that Jesus says, oh, and by the way, this is such a holy moment that people will talk about this for years and years and years to come. So they're gathered around the table. They've witnessed this woman illustrate this beautiful pouring out of love, this anointment, this giving, this bringing of something so expensive. In fact, most scholars would say that the ointment she brought was probably part of her dowry. It was probably something that had been in her families for years and years and years. Something so expensive she couldn't buy, but she took it out of the dowry. She took it out of the family treasury. I said, here, Jesus, this belongs to you. Only you are worthy of this. And as they watched this whole thing unfold, Matthew tells us, Matthew chapter 26, verse 14, this is really important. If we read it too fast, we miss it. It says, then. The word then means right in the middle of the moment. But right after Jesus says, hey guys, this is so big, this is so significant, people will talk about this forever. Right then, in that moment, it says, then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? For Judas, that was enough. For Judas, he said, listen, I've had enough of this, Jesus. I've had enough of you treating the Romans too well. I've had enough of you for, for not rising up. I've had enough of you for not coming to be the king and ruling with an iron scepter. I've had enough of not having an army and an infantry training. Like, here's the deal. I, I'm going to do it my way. And so Judas, in the midst of this, goes, listen, the last straw is that you're willing to waste money. The last straw for Judas was, hey, I think we should have sold it, and you said it was significant. I thought I deserved some of that money, and you said I didn't. I thought we should have put it in the money purse, and Jesus, you thought it belonged on you, and there was conflict between what, Jesus, between what Judas wanted and what Jesus wanted. And in that moment, Judas goes to the chief priest who opposed Jesus, and he says to them, what will you give me? How much would this be worth to you? What would you be willing to pay if I delivered Jesus over to you? Judas goes to him and goes, here's, here's the problem. See, every time Jesus is teaching, every time Jesus is performing miracles, every time Jesus is in public, there's a crowd around him. And Judas is like, I've been with Jesus long enough to see you. I've seen you try to arrest him. I've seen you try to come after him. But the problem is, is you're worried that people will rebel against you. That you're, you're worried that a riot will break out. You're worried that the crowd will turn on you because you can't get to Jesus where you're going, excuse me, pardon me, excuse me. No, no, we're going to get him, guys. Excuse me, pardon me. You can never get to him. And Jesus goes, but you know what I can do for you? I can give him to you. Because I'm part of the inner circle, I'll know when he's alone. I'll know when he's vulnerable. I'll know when you can get to him with no crowd. What would you pay me for that? Since he took all the oil, what would you be willing to give me to turn him over to you? And it says, and they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. And I often wonder if Judas really thought he had any power and any authority 
to hand Jesus over to anyone. I mean, you think in that moment, like, Judas, don't you remember? Like, don't you remember the time you were on the boat and you thought the boat was going to sink and you are going to drown to death? And you remember you woke Jesus up? Remember Jesus came up on top of the boat and he began to rebuke the wind and rebuke the sea? You remember when the storm ceased because he told it to? Don't you remember that? Like, remember when Lazarus was dead for so long that his family was, like, begging Jesus not to open the tomb because they knew it was going to smell bad in there? Remember how Jesus prayed, like, a little 10-second prayer and then, told Judas to, or, and then told Lazarus to wake up and Lazarus came out of the tomb? You remember that? Like, remember when Jesus came upon the blind guy and then he put mud in his eyes and he could see again? Remember when Jesus would heal the lame? Hey, remember that time that Jesus was walking on the water? Do you really think you have any power? Do you really think you have any authority? Do you really think there's any way you could turn Jesus over and force him to do something? You see, it's interesting because we have a similar view of God. See, deep down somewhere in our hearts, most of us wonder how we can get God to do stuff. Wonder, hey, Jesus, how could I get you involved in my goals? Hey, Jesus, how, how could I get you to enable my plan? Hey, hey, Jesus, how could I get you to make my five-year life plan happen? How could, I, how, how could you help me get the raise, and could you get this, and could you do this? And the reality is, is maybe there's some of us here who are like, no, no, I don't feel that way today. And then maybe there's some of us here that we don't feel that way today. But if we're here, we're also thinking, but I want you to be in my corner when I need you. Like, Jesus, I don't need anything today, but I'd really like to make sure you're available for when I do need something. See, the reality is there's a little bit of Judas inside every single one of us. That we have this desire to get God to do stuff for us. That we kind of wonder if there's a secret code, a secret dance. If maybe we can go to church just enough and pray prayers just enough, and maybe if we put a little money in the plate as it goes by, like maybe, just maybe, we could get God to do things we want him to do. Or at least maybe he would get involved in our marriages. Maybe he'd get involved in our families. Maybe some of us are here today because they're like, maybe we should start going to church so we can get God to do stuff for us. There's a little bit of Judas in any of us. And Judas believed that Jesus was just there to benefit him. Judas believed that Jesus was there is a means to an end. And one of the things we need to realize, and maybe one of the things that would give us a little more freedom is if we began to realize that God's hand cannot be forced and God's will cannot be thwarted. God's hand cannot be forced and God's will cannot be thwarted. My best guess, and this is my guess, is I think Judas's mentality, I think his thought process was something like this. If Jesus isn't ready to become king, if Jesus isn't ready to raise up an army, if Jesus isn't ready to overthrow Rome, then I'll force him to do it. And I don't really know what Jesus' plan is, but I know what my plan is, and maybe I can take some action and maybe I can do some things. Maybe I can set some stuff in motion that I could get Jesus to do the things I want him to do. And maybe Jesus just needs a little push. Maybe he just needs a little encouragement. Maybe he just needs me to create a situation where it's easier for him to do the things I think he should do. What's interesting is, in the last week of Jesus' life at Passover, they have a meal together. 
It's another one of these intimate, precious times with Jesus where they have dinner together, and for the first time, Jesus kind of changes up communion that we celebrate today, and he, he gives the disciples the bread. He says, this is my body, which will be broken for you. And he gives the wine. He says, and this is my blood shed for you. And right after dinner, Judas kind of skirts out and kind of goes away, and he goes to the chief priest and he tells him, I know where he's going to be. He's going to go to the garden and pray. And so listen, we'll go there. Listen, I'll kiss him on the cheek the one that you want. Just watch for me. The one that I kiss, that's the one that you want. And we know the story that they then go to the garden and pray and Judas comes with a small army and he walks up to Jesus and he kisses him on the cheek. And then Jesus is arrested. And I think Judas thought it's in that moment When the chief priests get him, he'll declare himself king. When they arrest him, Jesus will say, this is enough, we're going to war. But when they come and they try him, Jesus will reveal himself as the new messianic king who's here to rule and reestablish us, and we'll go to war with Rome, and all our enemies will be thwarted, and we'll be good to go, and I'll get a little bit of power. Judas thought that he could force God. Judas thought he could change God's will. And the good news for you and for me today is we cannot sin the way that Judas sinned. You and I will never have that opportunity to kiss Jesus on the cheek and betray him. But we can have the same mentality. We can have the same attitude. We will have times in our walk with Jesus where there'll be what we want and what Jesus commands in his word. And they will directly be in conflict with one another. And like Judas, we'll have to decide how to handle that. We'll have to decide whose will wins. In fact, really what's interesting is I think Jesus was revealing himself to be a different king. He was revealing himself to be a different Messiah. I think Jesus was revealing that he had a much different plan than Judas had. And so Judas tried to force him. That Judas tried to change his plans. And I think Judas thought that Jesus would kind of get on board with his agenda. I think Judas thought that that Jesus would all of a sudden agree to his plan because this is what happens. I think Judas knew that the chief priest didn't have very much authority. That the chief priest actually had to submit themselves to the governors of Rome. So there's not a whole lot they could do with Jesus. I think Judas thought this was a safe thing. I, I I don't think he thought anything could happen to Jesus because this is what Matthew says in Matthew chapter 27 verse 1. It says, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. But we talk about life being a journey, mental answers. We talk about our spiritual journey being step after step with all kinds of different moments. If I had to classify this moment for Judas, I think I'd classify it as an oh crap moment. Because all of a sudden, Rome's involved. All of a sudden, this isn't just a Jewish thing. This isn't just the priest. All of a sudden, they're taking him to Pilate, and I think Judas knew, uh oh, we're in trouble. I don't have any leverage. I don't have any authority. I can't manipulate this situation. You know, the in I had with the chief priest, it doesn't exist anymore. This has gone to a whole nother level. Rome's involved. In fact, this is what he says next Matthew chapter 27, 3 and 4. Then when Judas, his betrayer, 
saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and to the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Then Judas goes, that's not what I intended. That's not what I thought was going to go down. I didn't foresee Jesus going to the, the, to, the, to the governor. I didn't see him going to Pilate. I saw him coming in and saying, enough. I'm the king. Submit to my authority. These are my people. This is my city. This isn't what I wanted. And Judas goes, no, 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 guys, you're doing it wrong. I don't want the money. Deal off. Here, I'll give you the money back. Give me Jesus back. I don't want to do this anymore. In fact, what I did was a sin. This was a sin, guys. We're, we're sinning against innocent blood. The chief go, what's it to us? Deal with it yourself. I see, sometimes we make certain decisions that once we take that action, that once we pull that trigger, once we say yes, once that train leaves the station, it's never coming back. Sometimes there's things that we do that the consequences are unavoidable. All we can hope for is forgiveness. And for Judas, this is that situation. That Judas so desperately now wants to go back on this. Judas so desperately now wants us to go a different way, but the reality is the train has left the station. In fact, Matthew chapter 27, verse 6 says, But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. Now you have to see the irony here. The chief priests took the silver out of the treasury, gave it to Judas and said, we're going to take church money and pay you to betray Jesus. You got 30, 30 pieces of silver? Okay. Judas comes back and goes, here's your money back. And they go, whoa. That's, we can't use that as church money. That, that, ooh, that's blood money. And she's like, you gave it to me. It's your money. And they go, oh, we can't touch that. No, 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 right? <laughs> so they took the council, and they bought with them the potter's field as a burial, a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Now, this is really fascinating. They take the money and go, we're not really sure what to do with it. Somebody goes, hey, you know what we should do with the blood money? We should donate it for a good cause. Let's buy a field that we'll bury people in, people who, who don't have family, people who die poor. It'll be a place for strangers that they can actually have a proper burial. What should we call it? Let's call it the field of blood. Does everybody feel good about that? Blood money, field of blood, blood money, field Okay, take a vote. I, I favor Robert's rule. We're all done. One of the things that's interesting is sometimes people will say there's not a whole lot of evidence in the, in the Bible, biblically, historically, geographically, and this is one. Because you can go to Jerusalem till this day, and if you ask your tour guide, hey, take us to the field of blood, they go, well, that's it right there. But that, that's the, that's the, the field they bought with the money that Judas gave back to the temple. And maybe for some of you who are a little bit older, you'll be going off to college, and, and you'll have a philosophy professor who goes, the Bible's not really good. What about the field of blood? Because the scripture writers say that it was with the blood money, and history says that it was with the blood money that the priest gave to Judas, and Judas returned. And see, as we take a look at this, Judas wants to go back, but there's no going back. And it's almost as we begin to discover that God's hand can't be forced. 
that God's will cannot be thwarted. I think Judas is trying to enforce his will. I think Judas is trying to set in motion his plan. And Judas, kind of unbeknownst to him, becomes an accidental player in God's story. The Judas making this horrific decision, the Judas betraying Jesus kind of accidentally steps into the plan of God, and God uses that to ultimately accomplish his will. That God says, listen, listen, you're not going to change the plan. You can't force my will. You can't thwart my will. He goes, this has always been my will. I sent my son to die on the cross for your sins. You can't change that. And that Judas becomes an accidental player in the narrative of God's redemptive history for you and for me. And it's almost as we begin to discover that for Judas, for you, and for me, that we cannot force God's hand. And his will cannot be thwarted. And the reason this is so important, that the reason that we would spend a whole Sunday morning talking about this, is because there either has been, there currently is, or there will be a time in your walk with Jesus where you'll begin to discover what you want and what your will desires and what you're dreaming about and what your goal is is directly in conflict with what Jesus commands and what he wants and would glorify him the most. And in that moment, remember that his hand can't be forced. And in that moment, remember that his will cannot be thwarted. And remember that in that moment where there's tension between what you want and between what Jesus wants, remember the way you answer that is significant. And the way you answer that actually reveals yourself. Are you a consumer or are you a follower? And I think the goal, I think the goal for you and for me as followers of Christ, I think the attitude we have, I think the desires of our heart should look something like this. That when we get in that moment where there's what we want and there's what Jesus wants, we should say something like this. God, I want what you want more than I want what I want. I think that's what reveals the heart of a follower. Say, God, I want this, but I think you want this. God, I've been dreaming about and I have the opportunity, but I think you... God, don't you understand? He's so cute and she's so... And like, listen, anybody can be a Christian, but not everybody's attractive. And God, I, I want to get that job, but I, I know, and God, I could maybe do this, but it might challenge my soul a little bit. God, I could do this, it might challenge your word a little bit. God, what do I want? I think the heart of a father is to say, God, I want what you want more than I want what I want. And see, when you get to that moment, here's how, here's how you'll know you're there. Because even saying that out loud will kind of feel like a death. So you go, but God, I, re I really want this. And for me to say that I want what you want more than I want what I want, feels like I'm giving up on something. That doesn't feel like a gain. That feels like a loss. That feels like surrender. 
And the reality is, if we're totally truthful, there will be times where we're faced with what we want and what Jesus wants. And there'll be so much conflict. Because even to say, God, I want what you want more than I want may seem to be impossible. So I'm going to give you a little bit of wiggle room this morning. But before I give you the wiggle room, I want you to thank me for the wiggle room. So could you say thanks for the wiggle room, Adam? Could you say that? You're welcome. I really appreciate you saying that. So here's the deal. Here's what I want you to do. In that moment, when you say, God, this is what I want, but I know through your word, I know through your commands, I know, I know through Christian friends and my small group, I think what I want and what you want is different. And God, I don't know. I, I just don't know if I want what you want more than I want. Then you can say this. Here's your w- wiggle room. God, I want to want what you want more than what I want. God, I want to want what you want more than what I want. That when you feel that tension, would you just pause for a second? Before you take a next step, before you make a decision, would you just pause and maybe pray a little prayer like this and go, God, here's what I want and here's what you want. And I don't really know if I want what you want. I kind of want what I want. So here's my prayer. God, I want to want what you want, but I'm struggling. God, I want to want what you want, but I'm telling you, this looks good. God, I want to want what you want, but the reality is I don't. Would you just go before your heavenly father and say something like, God, I want to want what you want more than what I want. And then would you just wait? Because I think when we become so focused on what we want, I think when we become so focused on some sort of goal, some sort of person, some sort of thing, some sort of financial situation, some sort of opportunity, some sort of thrill that makes us feel good, when we become so focused on that, we actually close our fist around it. We go, I'm not giving up on this one. Jesus, I'll give you a lot, but you're not, you're not getting this one. In that moment, would you just pause? Would you say, God, I want to want what you want more than what I want. Because I think when we get like this, we become dangerously close to making really, really bad decisions that I think that we'll regret. I think Judas became so focused on what he thought Jesus should do they became so focused on what he thought the Messiah was supposed to do that he then made a decision where he thought he could force God's will. He thought he could force Jesus to do something. And here's, here's what I think. I think when Judas changed his mind, I think he would have given everything to go back and do it differently. In fact, one of the things that I've been thinking about all week was the fact that when Judas got so focused when Judas started to take that step to betray Jesus, Jesus did not stop Judas from doing what he wanted to do. You ever think about that? Jesus did not stop Judas from doing what he wanted to do. And Judas did not force Jesus to do anything. And I know for me and maybe for you, that scares me just enough. That when I get so focused on something that I think is right, 
when I get so focused on something that I think I should have, when I get so focused on what I think is next or something that I want or the goal, it scares me just enough to be able to open up my hand and pause and pray and say, God, I want to want what you want, but I'm gonna need your help. God, I want what you want more than I want, kind of. And I'm just gonna be honest right now. I know my heart should say that I want to want what you want more than I want, but it doesn't right now. So would you help me with that? God, if I just pause long enough, would you somehow meet me in this tension? God, if I just waited on you, would you somehow show up? God, would you give me the strength to want what you want more than what I want? And I think if we did that long enough, and I think if we made that a habit, that sooner or later, we could just drop the I want to want. And as we take the next step of saying I want to want, I think if we do that long enough, sooner or later, our hearts desire to go, God, in everything, in all the details, I want to want what you want more than what I want. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning. We thank you for today. God, I do thank you that you love us and that you care for us. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the narrative of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. God, I pray for all of us in the room that some of us have some big decisions to make. God, some of us have emails waiting on us. We have voicemails we need to return. For some of us, we're meeting with the boss next week. For some of us, as a as a husband and a wife, we're making decisions for our family. God, there's things going on, and the reality is, is maybe there's some of us here that are feeling the tension that we want what we want, but we know what you want. God, I pray that you'd give us the ability in those moments to pause and just to be honest with you about how we feel. And God, I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would give us the ability and the wisdom to pause long enough to say, God, I want to want what you want more than what I want. And God, I pray that you'd meet with us. God, I pray that we'd make decisions differently. God, I pray that as we follow you, it would lead us to a place that is good for us, for our benefit and for our joy and for your glory. God, help us maybe even now as we continue to worship today. God, maybe through the power of your word and through the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to recognize the thing that we're clenching onto so closely. God, the thing that we hold so tight. God, help us to maybe just open up to you and say, God, in this area, God, about this decision, I want to want what you want more than I want. Jesus, it's in your hand that we pray. Amen.